I am excited to preach this morning uh, because we are starting Romans 7. Romans 7. We're just going to touch on the beginning of Romans 7. We're just going to cover 1 through 6. There's a lot that needs to be said about Romans 7, so we're just starting off here. But we have talked about, in the book of Romans, we've talked about the gospel. The whole sermon series through Romans is about the gospel clarified. We've talked about how we are saved by faith, justified by faith, how we've been transferred out of the realm of Adam and placed into the realm of Christ. And just as of the last couple of weeks, looking at Romans 6, that we have died to sin. We have died to sin, and that means we are free from not only its condemnation, but ultimately even from its power, from its dominion. Not that we ever are able to live completely free of sin in this side of heaven, but God gives us freedom. Well, if Romans 6 is about how we have died to sin, Romans 7 is about how we have died to the law. We're not only dead to sin, but that necessitates the idea that we have also died to the law. And by the law, I'm referring to the law of Moses, sometimes called the Mosaic Law, the Torah, the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible, uh, the commandments. So when you think of the Ten Commandments, that's a summary of the Torah. All of the ceremonies and the civic duties and responsibilities we find there. And to a sort of extension degree, to religion in general. To all of the rituals and commands of human beings. That ultimately, we, if we are free from sin, we are also free from the law. We don't depend upon the law for our salvation. Um, instead, what do we do? We live for God. And how do we do that? He will tell us it is by the work of the Holy Spirit. We're in Romans 7, 1 through 6. He's going to start off with an illustration and then uh, start to apply this idea of being dead to the law and living by the way of the Spirit. There should be, uh, uh, the scripture will be on the screen or you can look at it in your Bibles if you brought them with you. We read this, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person Only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers... You also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, So that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. This is the word of the Lord. And may God add blessing to the proclamation and application of his word this morning. So we have died to the law in order that we might live by the spirit. Here's where we're going. First First three verses are an illustration taken from marriage, from the world of matrimony. In four and five, we died to the law through Christ. And then finally in verse 6, we live 
in the new way of the Spirit. That's where we're headed. First, this illustration from marriage. He begins with an illustration. He says, I'm speaking to those who know the law, those who know the Torah. It's very important. Probably primarily addressing the Jewish believers, the Jewish Christians among the Roman church. Certainly also Gentiles who are familiar with the Torah. But he's addressing those who are familiar with the Torah. And he says specifically about marriage. He says the, a law, the law, the Torah, is binding only while someone is alive. That's sort of a common sense statement, right? If you're dead, you're not subject to obeying the Torah anymore. I mean, not on this side of glory, right? So um, if you're dead, the law doesn't apply to you. And he talks about specifically when it comes to the married a married woman, a married wife. She is bound by the law to her husband while he lives. That was true of the Jewish law. That was true of Roman law. It's true of many laws around the world. Marriage is a legal, covenantal, binding agreement. And so if she is bound legally in in a covenantal relationship with her husband and she goes and lives with another man and has relationship sexual relations with him, she's an adulterer. That's the definition of adultery. None of this should be too surprising. Of course, you could say the same thing, vice versa. If a man is married to a woman and he goes and lives with another woman who he is not married to, then he commits adultery. It's clear in the Torah. It's clearly uh, said to be a sin. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Um, There was what sometimes called the sinner's Bible. I don't know if you've ever heard this before. Uh, But there was an edition of the Bible that left out the word not in the worst possible place you can imagine. It actually said in the edition of the Bible, thou shalt commit adultery. Um, Which, of course, it's called the sinner's Bible. We know that was incorrect. He continues the illustration. But if the husband dies, then she's free from the law. She can marry again. And he says this is an illustration in regards to our relationship to the law. Now, there's a limit to the illustration, um, and some have kind of picked on Paul on this illustration. I don't know if you caught it, but um, in the illustration, it's not the one who dies who gets remarried because they're dead, right? But in the way he's applying it, if we are like the woman who dies to the law, we're the one getting remarried. So it doesn't really completely fit, but the point is still being made that death ends a marriage. When someone gets married, they take their vows, if they use the traditional vows, which I always recommend when people get married, and I do a, a wedding, till death do us part. Before we move on, uh, just looking at the Bible in marriage for a minute and seeing how important this is, uh, marriage is a really big deal in the Bible. Um, it comes from God. It's not a human institution. It's not human beings a few thousand, ten thousand years ago. It came up with this idea of marriage. It actually is given to us by God. Uh, the Bible starts with a marriage. God creates Eve from Adam's side. And God, as the father of the bride, brings his daughter to Adam as they are united together as one flesh. Jesus' very first miracle took place at a wedding. Do you know that? Uh, The wedding feast of Cana, Jesus turns the water into wine, and John tells us this is the very first of Jesus' miraculous signs. Making a statement, certainly about his own ministry, but also about the value of marriage. 
And the Bible is filled with didactic teaching about marriage. It has a lot to say about it. Now also, the Bible recognizes sin. (laughs) That the world is a broken place. That marriage is not what it always should be. In fact, the Old Testament talks about a certificate of divorce. Um, It says basically that if a husband divorces his wife, assumes that reality, never gives sort of permission to it, but just assumes that reality, then he must write her a certificate of divorce. And the purpose of that, by the way, was to protect the woman. In uh, ancient culture, the woman didn't have really much recourse in that situation. She can't provide for herself. She's not going to just sort of open up her own field and start working in agriculture. She needs to find another husband. And so the point of that command in the Torah is that she has to be given legal freedom to find another. When uh, the Pharisees in the New Testament sort of ask Jesus about that, he says it is because of the hardness of your hearts that Moses gave this commandment. Recognizing the sinful, broken world that we live in That's why the command was given. And when you read it in the Torah, that is exactly why it was stated, because of the hardness of hearts, not the ideal. In fact, Jesus also gives another sort of reason, he gives a reason for divorce. And that is, he says, that of sexual immorality or adultery, marital unfaithfulness. Because we are sinners, sometimes a marriage covenant is broken by adultery and there is no restoration in it. The Bible gives one other exception later on in Scripture. Um, As the church begins, and uh, Christians start to sort of pop up everywhere, all over Asia Minor and throughout the Roman Empire, uh, a new situation arises, and that is when you have a believer, a Christian believer, married to an unbeliever. And, And what do you do in that situation? And the advice is very clear. It says if the unbeliever wants to continue in marriage, stay married. You absolutely should stay married in that case. Who knows if you'll eventually win your spouse over. But if the unbeliever wants to leave, basically says, I have had enough of your whole Christian stuff and I don't want to be part of this anymore, then you can let them leave. It's 1 Corinthians 7. Jesus also said marriage is for this world. It's for this world. Um, There is no marrying or being given in marriage in heaven. I find that to be a bit strange. Um, I can't, you know, Jessica and I will be in both in heaven I'm sure we'll be close, (laughs) but we won't be husband and wife. That'll be a strange situation. Of course, on this side of glory, we just can't see it with eyes that really understand what that will be like. But as it says, death ends a marriage. And so a widow can remarry. Now, he doesn't say a widow should remarry. He doesn't say that he's advising that. He's simply saying a widow in that case is free to remarry if the situation arises. And let me just say, uh, trust me as a pastor, I've met with people with all different types of backgrounds. People who have been married multiple times. People who have come out of very difficult, abusive situations. And Pastor Mike would say the same. We've seen it all. I mean, we've heard it all. uh, And what we can say is that God is a gracious and merciful God. He's able to redeem and restore things that are broken. Whether that means a new something, a brand new future, or whether that means restoring a relationship that has been devastated by sin. God is a gracious and merciful God. Now you might say, this is kind of a strange illustration for our, how we relate to God. Isn't that, Pastor Rick, this idea of marriage, that we're married now to Jesus? Um, actually, it's not. It's, uh, that illustration of marriage is used in regards to our relationship with God 
all throughout the Bible, pretty consistently throughout the entire Bible. Marriage, as I said, is a God-given thing, not a human institution, because it reveals something about God himself and our relationship as human beings to him. Uh, In the Old Testament, God is the husband of Israel. Israel is his wife, and he loves her in spite of the fact that she continues to turn away from him, at times even commit what is called spiritual adultery against him. Read the book of Hosea. If you're not familiar with uh, uh, the book of Hosea, read just the first three chapters if you're not ready to jump into the entire thing. But Hosea is this prophet, and God says to Hosea, I want you to go and marry an unfaithful wife. Marry a prostitute in Israel. And Hosea, I'm sure shocked, but does what God commands. His wife leaves him for another man. And God says, go back and bring her home again. And after her revelry, he brings her home and loves her again. And his whole point is, this is how I love Israel, my people, who continue to turn away from me. And yet, with undying love, I show commitment and covenant faithfulness to her. In the New Testament, Jesus is described as the groom of his bride, the church. The church is described as the people of God, and Jesus is the bridegroom heading forward to a glorious day that's talked about in Revelation. I know the Tuesday morning group is studying Revelation. I think they are just about at this passage, if they're not there yet, in which we see the wedding feast of the Lamb, in which God, which the Lord Jesus is united to his bride, the church, for all eternity. Marriage is used as an illustration of the gospel. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church, which means being willing to die for her, serve her, put her needs before your own, as Jesus does for us. And wives, to submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord in that sort of complementary, ongoing love relationship. In fact, the early theologians would talk about the church as our mother. (laughs) So if we are part of the bride of Christ, who is the church? Uh, The church acts as sort of the the mother. Uh, So this doesn't really work on an individual level, by the way. Um, When I think of Jesus as the husband of the church, I don't see him as my personal husband. That's strange as a man to think that way. And it's never used in that sort of individual, personal level. Instead, the church is seen as sort of a mother figure. One of the questions that's often asked is if God, the Father, God reveals himself in the masculine. He's, he's father, he's king rather than queen. If, if that's true over and over again, where's the mother figure that brings this out? The sort of, we're made in the image of God, male and female. Where's the mother figure? And the answer to that question, by the way, it's not Mary. Mary plays a very important role in Scripture. She's never described as the mother of all Christians or something like that. The answer is obvious. It's the church. Cyprian, the early bishop, said this, No one can have God as father who does not have the church as mother. Or Augustine said this, Let us honor the church, our true mother, the, bri- the true bride of her husband, because she is the wife of so great a lord. And what shall I say? How great is that husband and of singular rank that he discovered a prostitute, the church, because of its unfaithfulness at times, and made her a virgin. Loves her, cares for her. That illustration then does actually kind of fit. Paul is drawing on a long history 
of what it means to relate to God ultimately as the spouse of God's people. But again, he's applying this in verse 4 to 5. We died to the law. We died to the law through Christ. Um, He applies the illustration. We're the woman in this illustration who has now died to a former husband, meaning the law, and are now united to a new husband in Christ. As he says here, we died through the body of Christ. Uh, That doesn't refer to the church. I know sometimes in Scripture the body of Christ refers to uh, the local church, but in this case it almost certainly refers to the actual body of Christ, meaning his sacrifice for us in our place. And we died, why? So that we would belong to another. Died to the law so that we might belong to a new husband, a new spouse. Who is that? The one raised from the dead. What a great way to describe Jesus. The one who was raised from the dead. So what we're going to celebrate during Easter, of course, together. Why are we united to this new spouse? So that we might bear fruit for God. And you might say, Did Paul just switch illustrations? I mean, one minute he's talking about marriage. The next minute he's talking about fruit trees. Uh, No, remember in Genesis, what is the calling to a married couple? Be fruitful and multiply. It bears something. A marriage brings something into this world. Usually children, right? Well, in the flesh, what fruit is born out of that relationship? Death. Sin. And he talks here about how sin is aroused by the law. And we'll talk more about that later on in chapter 7. Uh, he says the law itself is good. The problem isn't the law. The law is holy, righteous, and good. It comes from God. The problem is our sinful nature responds to the law only by being aroused by sin. Uh, the law, rather than making us righteous and bearing good fruit, bears bad fruit. Uh, he talks about coveting, for example. When you hear the command, do not covet, it, it produces in us covetous desires, uh, just the very hearing of it. I'll, I'll, I'll try to illustrate this for you. Um, I'll give you a command, see if you can obey it, all right? Don't think of an elephant. How many people here, be honest, just thought of an elephant, right? <laughs> you almost can't not do it. The very command gets us thinking in the direction I've asked you not to do. Sin arouse, I'm sorry, uh, the, the law arouses sin in us. So what is our relationship to the law then? Well, before Jesus, it was as if Israel, at least, was married to the law in covenant legal agreement. In fact, the idea that they would no longer have to obey ceremonies, the the food laws, all of these sort of, uh, the circumcision and so forth, that would be unthinkable that you would just give that up unless you died to it. I don't think any Jewish believer in the Old Testament would say a dead person has to obey the food laws for obvious reasons. That is not who we are anymore. There's been a spiritual death to that. I know today many still feel obligated to sort of obey the law. Certainly a lot of Jewish people, but others as well. A system of rules that you feel sort of bound to. Um, some of us come from a certain religious background where it is like a, a marriage. You feel bound to obey that sort of system of ceremonies and rituals. Uh, the truth of the matter is human beings are instinctually religious. Um, I know that you know, sort of the modern kind of atheism wants to say that we can move beyond this, but the truth of the matter is all over the world it just naturally pops up everywhere. Everywhere. Even in communist China, which is supposed to be 
sort of Maoist atheists, atheists, what happens? No, local religions everywhere pop up. Christianity, of course, spreading throughout China. That's our life in Adam. We are bound to the law. The only way out of that is to die to it and belong to another. And what we hear, read here in the scriptures is that we now belong to Jesus. You don't belong to the law, to the world, to Adam, to your flesh, to your sinful passions, to Satan. You belong to Jesus. You are his bride. He loves you. He protects you. Provides for us. He died for us. What a husband is meant to do. You belong to him. You are in, if you're a Christian believer, a covenantal, committed, loving, bound relationship with the eternal son of God. And he wants to bear fruit out of that relationship. And the fruit for that relationship is the fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. True and genuine love for one another, for our neighbor, even for our enemies. Genuine worship and praise, proclaiming how great is our God and a faithful witness for Jesus in this broken world. That's the fruit that comes out of this new marriage. Verse 6, we've died to the law, yes. So what? That we might live in the new way of the Spirit. Now what? (laughs) If we don't have the law, what are we supposed to use as our guide? How do we go forward from this point forward? We live in the Spirit. As he says here, now that we are released from the law, having died to it, that which held us captive, bound us into relationship, now what? So that we might serve in a new way. Something has changed. Something's different. Something's newer. And he describes the new way as the way of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit at work within us as his people, bearing fruit, growing in grace. Not in the old way of the written code. Again, a reference to the ceremonies, the civil law, even the morality of the Old Testament we don't depend upon to be saved. Before we talk about the work of the Spirit, though, how do we read the Old Testament then? I mean, do you say, well, what... Asterisk, should we never read the Torah? Should we never read the prophets or the writings? I mean, what's the point of reading the Old Testament then if we are not bound to it in any way? There's a number of different reasons. Let me just cover some of them. Um, We read it because it shows us the very character of God. You know how we know who God is? The New Testament just assumes these things to be true because they have the whole history of God's people in the Old Testament. That God is holy, but he's just He's merciful and he's loving. He's kind. That he wants to offer forgiveness through sacrifice. All these things come from the character of God that we see and we reveal, that is revealed in the Old Testament. We read it as a reminder of the history of God's people and the lessons to be learned. So in the New Testament it says, these were written down for us upon whom the end of the ages has come. The fullness of time has come. Uh, They happened. Israel really did come out of Egypt, walked through the dry land, uh, uh, through the Red Sea on dry land and so forth. These really happened, but they were written down for future generations so that we would learn what is to be learned from these lessons. We read it because it points to our need of Jesus Christ. (laughs) When we read the Old Testament, what do we see but failures, ultimately? Trying to obey God's law, but 
not able to. Reminds us of our sin and our inability points us to Jesus. We read it as a guide to show us what holiness, morality, and righteousness is. God's word proclaims what is good. Take the Ten Commandments, for example. And as we read it, it shows us, reveals to us, the heart of God and what is good. Even the civil law, by the way. Sometimes people like to pick on the civil laws of the Old Testament and uh, kind of mock them and say, what do these things have to do with us today? Actually, if you just read it just a little beyond surface level, <laughs> it actually is, it speaks a lot. I'll give you an example. One that's often brought up is, why does the Old Testament says, you, know, don't, you have to build uh, parapets, or like a fence, on the top of your roof? What does that have to do with us today? But again, if you look a little bit deeper than that, uh, they used the roof as a room. It was a living space on top of the house. The houses had flat roofs. Well, you don't want kids or anyone else falling off <laughs> and dying. And so you are responsible to protect your neighbor and make sure every house has a roof on the top. That's actually a very easy one to see the heart of God behind it. It's not pointless. They actually show us something about what loving your neighbor is all about. We don't read it because it saves us. We don't read it to obey its rituals. We have the spirit of God in us. We are free from the law, and we live in the new way of the Spirit. Now, we're going to talk a lot more, Lord willing, about the Holy Spirit, especially in chapter 8. But just for now, as he says here, we live in the way of the Spirit. The Father wills, the Son works, and the Spirit applies the work of God to us. I know a lot of people get confused when it comes to the Holy Spirit. You know, the Father, we can kind of understand to some degree, he's the creator he's all-powerful he wills everything into existence everything is contingent upon him jesus we get because he was an actual human being like us who lived who died who rose from the dead Uh, we get that but the spirit seems so sort of nebulous and and hard for us to get our our minds and our hearts around so we just say a a little bit about the work of the spirit people say do we even i mean how important is the holy spirit really and ultimately for the christian life um very, as we'll see in a second here. But um, first of all, the Holy Spirit is God. He is the third person of the Trinity. He is a person as the Father is a person as the Son is a person. He is not an it. Uh, This is my little pet peeve. When people refer to the Holy Spirit as it, it was at work at church the other day. Oh, do, do you have it? It was really showing. It's not an it. We're talking about God himself in his very presence. What does the Holy Spirit do? He's the one who regenerates us. Jesus said the wind blows where it pleases, so it is with the Spirit of God. Unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom. He's the one who sanctifies us. His work within us, his unseen presence, is what bears fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, and so forth. The Holy Spirit is the one who gifts us. So every Christian has a spiritual gift, whether that's teaching or administration or helps and service and so forth. He's the one who gives us that gifting. He's the one who convicts us of sin. So we sit so uncomfortably in our rebellion against God and turn from it. He's the one who comforts us in the midst of our afflictions. When we're grieving, when we're hurting, reminds us of the very presence of God. He's the one who opens up the word of God to us. When you read the Bible, you pray, Holy Spirit, open my eyes to see and understand your word. He's the one who brings unity to the church. 
we're not just talking about a bunch of people who agree on certain ideas coming together. There is a spiritual bond that comes in the church. He's the one who lifts up our hearts when we worship and we sing praise to God. He is the down payment for our eternal hope. If you want to be sure, if you want evidence that heaven is coming, look to the work of the Spirit right now in your life. That is a divine and supernatural work that is impossible without God. What does the Holy Spirit do? Everything. I mean, he takes the whole of the work of God and brings it to us. And now we live, not in the old way of the law, but in the new way of the Spirit. We died to the law to live by the Spirit. Not only are we free from sin, we are free from the law. One comes with the other. It was as if we were married to the law in an unbreakable covenant until death do us part. And then spiritually, we were freed as we died to sin and to the law to now be united and married to another, Jesus Christ. Not bound, not captive, but a relationship full of love, bearing fruit with the Spirit's empowering presence. This week is... Um, St. Patrick's Day. So, happy St. Patrick's Day in advance. Uh, Patrick, of course, was a real person. Uh, by the way, I'm half Irish, so this, this, is, this is kind of neat history for me. Some of you guys are Irish. I also know that today is my grandmother on the Irish side's She's not with us anymore, but her birthday would, it be, would it be have been her birthday. But it's interesting to learn some of the background of Ireland. Um, they, before Patrick went there, the background there was a religious. As I said, religion pops up everywhere. You can't help it. There was a type of law there. It was Celtic paganism. By the way, it's Celtic, not Celtic. I don't know why the Boston Celtics changed it, but they were polytheistic. And they were led by a priestly class called Druids. If you know this about the background of the Celtics, they believed in human, they practiced human sacrifice. The slaves would be burnt along with the body of their masters upon their master's death. They built wicker figures, these large stick figures in which they would put a living human being and burn them alive. They impaled their captives Different gods of the Celtics required different types of sacrifices. Some would be hanged in honor of a specific god of the Celtics. Some immolated, some drowned. They believed in ritual decapitation and head hunting. They would display human skulls. In the first century, Diodorus Siculus describes the Celts this way. These men, uh, particularly the Druids, these men predict the future by observing the flight and calls of birds and by the sacrifice of holy animals. All orders of society are in their power. And in very important matters, they prepare a human victim, plunging a dagger into his chest by observing the way his limbs convulse as he falls and the gushing of his blood, they're able to read the future. In the third century, Gaius Julius Solanus writes this, It is a surly and savage race. The soldier in the moment of victory takes a drought, a drink of his enemy's blood, and smears his face with the gore. Well, Patrick, as a young man, was captured as a slave and was by the Irish, by the Celtics, and lived there for six years in bondage. 
until he miraculously escapes. Can you imagine? Goes back to English. By the way, Patrick was not Irish. He was, he was English. He was a missionary to Ireland, as we're going to see here. As he's back in England, certainly rejoicing and celebrating the fact that he is free from his slavery, the Lord calls him back to Ireland. He has a vision one day that says, young child, come walk with us again. And in obedience to what God, he believed God was calling him to do, he trains for the ministry and goes back to the Celts, these barbaric, savage people, and spends his life ministering to them and seeing to the conversion of Ireland. Eventually dies on March 17th, which we recognize as St. Patrick's Day. And Ireland is transformed into something different and new. Ireland is transformed by Christ. One of... uh, one of Patrick's most famous prayers that have survived here today is something called the morning prayer or sometimes called the breastplate of St. Patrick or sometimes called the Lorica. And we'll end with this. And you think of, when you think of this, think of our new, leaving that old law and being united to a new bride, Christ, and how that transformed all of Ireland. I arise today through God's strength to pilot me God's might to uphold me, God's wisdom to guide me, God's eye to look before me, God's ear to hear me, God's word to speak for me, God's hand to guard me, God's way to lie before me, God's shield to protect me, God's host to save me, afar and anear, alone or in a multitude. Christ, shield me today against wounding. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me. Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down and Christ when I sit down, Christ in the heart of everyone who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in the eye that sees me, Christ in the ear that hears me. I arise today through the mighty strength of the Lord of creation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the transforming work of the gospel. That we have died to sin. And what is more, we have died to the law. We have died to religiosity, to religion itself. To be married instead spiritually to Christ. To have him with us, surrounding us, before us and behind us. And transforming us as we walk in the way of the Spirit. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.